This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day, Griffoceratops, and a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, we like to thank some of our patrons who help us keep our podcast going and our website up and the hosting so that we can get this podcast to you every week. And this week we would like to thank Kyle, Brendan Kavanov, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Jeremy, Scully, and Avery. And Scully and Avery also just separately joined this week, just like we had two people join last week. Ooh, exciting. It is exciting. It's getting us a lot closer to our goals, which is great. And we have SVP coming up, which is kind of an expensive trip. So that's also helpful for that. So thank you all very much. And to all of our patrons, we really appreciate it. If you want to check out our page and join this growing group of people, then go to patreon.com slash inodino. The morning that we're recording this episode, which is August 16th, there was a big new article published all about Spinosaurus and how aquatic it is, which has already sort of made some waves. <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. Uh, didn't get that. <laughs> yeah. So the paper sought to model just how Spinosaurus would move in the water and how aquatic it could have been. And they point out that there's a limitation that there aren't any complete Spinosaurus skeletons. So it's based on several individuals from all over the place, different sizes, and then the bones had to be scaled so that you could actually do this kind of model because we don't find really enough Spinosaurus material to do a real rigorous model on one individual, unfortunately. So first... What Don Henderson did, he's the one who wrote this article, and it was in Pure J, by the way. He made a complete 3D model of a Spinosaurus, including the density of the whole body. We've seen this more and more lately with better computer models. So he included stuff like air sacs and lungs, and that way you kind of have a better idea of the density of the animal, which is important when you're looking at things floating in water. So one of the pros from his model in terms of it being aquatic was that it could float and its head would have stayed above water all the time, pretty much. So that's a good thing. You kind of need that if you're going to be a... A semi-aquatic animal? Yeah, if you're going to yeah be breathing air and swimming. But there are quite a few cons. First, it was laterally unstable, which means that it would tend to roll onto its side. And it's it's kind of 
obvious when you think about the body shape of something like an alligator versus a spinosaurus. So it's that real tall, slender body shape versus a wider, more stable looking body shape for the water. And technically, the reason that this happens is the center of mass is above the metacentric height, it's called. In other words, the center of mass is above where it should be based on where the buoyancy kind of centers the weight. You can think of it like putting too much weight high up in a boat or like trying to stand in a canoe or something. When the weight is really high above that sort of pivoting point in the water, then the whole thing wants to go topsy-turvy. And that's what happened in their models. They, they basically tested tipping <laughs> a Spinosaurus, like you have it floating vertically and then you poke it digitally and you see if it flips over. And every time they tipped it, it would end up sideways. <laughs> so it's like a, a boat that's unstable and the canoe just tips sideways because there's too much weight too high up. And it also made me think it's a lot like Borealopelta. They did a similar model with ankylosaurs where they were like, why do all these ankylosaurs always end up upside down when they fossilize? And they found the same exact thing. With all the armor on an ankylosaur's back, that center of mass was too high in the water when it was upright, so it wanted to flip upside down. It's the exact same thing. And funny enough, the author, Don Henderson, also worked on Borealopelta. So maybe maybe that's, that's how he got the idea. Yeah, I'm wondering that too. They tried making the bones more dense to see like, oh, maybe if we made the leg bones really dense, that would bring the center of mass down. But it really only added like a few kilograms to the mass of this huge animal. So it, it didn't really affect anything. And then just as a thought experiment, I was thinking like, well, what if it is unstable, but it could kind of counteract that with some of its limbs, like it could just kind of paddle sideways or something. But when you look at the overhead view and the side view of the Spinosaurus, you realize it doesn't really have the kind of limbs you would want to sort of right itself. So it's like... Too short? Yeah. Well, they they just don't go in the right directions. So like the tail is behind it. So that's not going to help you really from tipping over. You could try to bend it from side to side constantly to try to <laughs> not tip in that direction. But that's not really that great. And its arms are kind of small relative to the side of its body. It doesn't have like big flippers that it could use like a penguin or something to kind of just like stick one flipper out and move it a little bit. It would have to kind of flail constantly, it seems like. So yeah, it seems pretty unstable. Another con that they found was that its air sacs made it "quote unquote" unsinkable. So, <laughs> it's like an. Is it the Titanic? <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking too. But really, what it's more like is like a raft. So it's so full of air that it couldn't sink, and it couldn't pursue underwater prey because of that, which makes it seem like it's probably not swimming around looking for fish. If it has to splash around to right itself too, that's not very stealthy. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. And I mean. We've seen some paleo art recently of Spinosaurus completely submerged, and they're basically saying, nope, that's not going to happen. And they even tried deflating the lungs in the air sac of Spinosaurus to see, like, well, what if it just exhaled 75% of its breath? Could it then get underwater? And it, they still couldn't get it to sink. So that's not a great sign. And when they compared that in their model to alligators, they saw the alligator sank at about 40 to 50% of an exhalation then it would be all the way fully submerged. So other animals can do this, just not Spinosaurus. So the paper also took a look at its terrestrial abilities because obviously if you're going to say, well, it's not very competent in the water, 
it would help to say how competent it was on land. So they compared its center of mass to Coelophysis, Allosaurus, T. rex, Struthiomimus, and Baryonyx. And in their paper, it's kind of funny because what we usually refer to as Suchomimus tenorensis, they refer to as Baryonyx tenorensis, saying that Suchomimus isn't distinct enough from Baryonyx to be considered its own genus, which has been suggested previously, and they're just kind of reasserting that belief. They're both from pretty partial remains, so... We've, I think we talked about that in an interview not too long ago, that really spinosaurs are pretty poorly known, so it's hard to erect these new genus when you find the tip of one skull and the back part of a different skull, <laughs> and you just kind of assume that they're going to be different. It's not a great place to start. But anyway, the reason that they were looking at the center of mass of these different animals is when you're looking at an animal walking on land, you want to see where its center of mass is so that you know which limbs it needs to use. So since we're talking dinosaurs, they're all kind of horizontal. So if their center of mass is right in between their legs, basically over their hips, then it can walk using just its legs, its hind legs. But if you do something like a sauropod, you're going to see its center of mass kind of in between its hind legs and its front legs. And then you think, okay, it must be using all four legs because there's no way that it could balance on just its back legs. Its center of mass is too far forward. When they did their analysis, what they found was that on all of these animals, the center of mass was just a little bit in front of the hips, but it's still in between where the legs would touch on the ground. So if you think of kind of like a ladder and you need to keep the, the weight when you're on a ladder in between <laughs> the supports of the ladder, because if you go past to one side, then the ladder will tip over, it's still within the frame of the ladder. It's just not dead center in the middle. So... All of them, they said, Coelophysis, Allosaurus, Baryonyx, T-Rex, Druthiomimus, and Spinosaurus could all just walk on their two legs and would have been pretty good at it. So Spinosaurus may have beaten T-Rex in that fight? No. No. That's, <laughs> that's not what they're saying. <laughs> they're saying that... But it's it, more plausible that it could have even fought on land. Well, yeah, it could have walked at least. They didn't talk at all about its biting force or anything like that, yeah. which I think is the biggest issue for that battle. But you're right. It would have been potentially more terrestrial and not just like hiding out underwater, which I guess in Jurassic Park 3, it probably couldn't have snuck up on them from below the water like they did. Oh, true. Oh, when they did these models too, they also found that all of the other animals they tested would have also floated and kept their head above water. So that's not something special to Spinosaurus. It's just kind of something that they say pretty much all terrestrial vertebrates can do. It's just kind of how lungs help you out. They keep your head above water. They didn't talk much about the skull, but they do reference some other articles. They did a good job of reviewing a lot of the previous literature. The skull does really seem to be pretty well geared towards eating fish or being a piscivore. So it's got the pointy teeth for slippery fish, doesn't have serrations for tearing flesh, and it also has long jaws, more like a gharial, doesn't have that powerful skull like a T-Rex that you would use for crushing bone or something like that. But its body looks more like a typical theropod. So, you know, the kind of thing that you see walking on two legs. And a lot of people have mentioned that as a disconnect before, like, why does it have this land living body and aquatic type head. It's very strange. And 
just like all these previous conclusions, they ended up with the same thing, which is it was probably on the shore or in shallow water most of the time. And then, you know, trying to eat fish without really getting its whole body in the water. But it could have walked around on land and also eaten land animals if it needed to. One thing that I think is interesting about this is it's definitely going to spur a bunch of debate. And people are going to start talking about, well, was Spinosaurus semi-aquatic? And so I started looking into sort of the definition of semi-aquatic, and it includes an incredibly wide range. So at the most water living end, you've got animals like sea turtles that basically only come on land to breed, and that's it. They spend 99.999% of their life in the water, and then they pop out for one event in their life. (laughs) Maybe if they're male, it's just swimming into the water that first time, and that's it. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got things like the crab-eating macaque, which only goes into the water to eat once in a while, because even crab-eating macaques only eat crabs occasionally. They mostly eat fruit, Hmm. but they're considered semi-aquatic because they at least partially go into the water to eat once in a while. What about humans then? Actually, this article, I was looking at a list on Wikipedia of just tons of mammals, and one of them, one of the footnotes was basically like, some people say that certain groups of humans are (laughs) semi-aquatic because there are, I guess, some like tribes of people that live on islands that eat a lot of fish and they Mm -hmm. free dive so they you know just kind of jump off the shore or whatever and they dive down to the bottom of the water and grab a lobster or a fish or something and eat that it's like that could be considered semi-aquatic because they're going into the water to get food sure oh okay you have to be fully in the water so if you're just swimming that doesn't count no that would count but you'd have to like do it for a purpose of like living i don't think just like crossing a stream or swimming across something counts as being semi-aquatic yeah that's like (laughs) there isn't a good example in the animal kingdom for a sort of leisurely activities (laughs) in the water exactly (laughs) but they did talk about like bats so like there are some bats that mostly eat fish but they don't really go in the water they just fly over the water and snatch them out of the water so that is considered semi-aquatic because you're eating these fish. Oh, birds do that too. Yep. Some birds count as semi-aquatic. And then within birds, there's a whole range too. You got penguins, which are in water a ton of the time. Mm-hmm. And then things like flamingos that just stand in the water, but pluck out shrimp or whatever they eat. Mm-hmm. And then things like hawks, certain hawks that just snatch fish out of the water. So semi-aquatic is very broad. And it's really a question of how aquatic was the semi-aquatic Spinosaurus because its head, looking at its head, it's like it was eating fish. It's just like there's no way you go from the ancestral theropod teeth of serrated to these fish-eating teeth without eating fish. It's just, and I think we even have gut contents that include a couple fish scales. Mm. So, (laughs) yeah. But they also found, I believe, a terrestrial animal, like some sort of juvenile dinosaur or pterosaur or something in the gut contents of a spinosaur so but nothing's ever like purely that could have just been scavenged exactly like everything will scavenge if it gets the right opportunity so yeah long story short spinosaurus probably just hanging out on the beach or the the coast sticking its head in the water trying to snag fish most of the time like a pelican Mm. totally different mouth but Kind of, but pelicans actually kind of have to go into the water a little bit more because they scoop it up. Uh, like a bear, but I, totally different. I think it's mostly like an alligator or a gharial, but they're kind of reversed. Mm. Rather than being mostly in the water, they're mostly on the land. Cool. 
Moving on, congrats to Victoria Arbor, who is the new curator of paleontology at the Royal British Columbia Museum. Ooh. Yeah, the article that announced it had a really good first line. It said, quote, groan if you must, but Victoria Arbor is coming to Victoria Harbor. Why is that a groan? Oh, Victoria Arbor, Victoria Harbor. Yep. That's really good. Yep. So she starts in September after a summer of digging for dinosaurs, and the British Columbia Museum has more than 90,000 specimens. Victoria says she plans to make the museum, quote, even more renowned in terms of paleontology research and find some cool fossils for them. Nice. Yeah. So congrats. Yeah, that's great. It's a little ways from where she was before because I think she was in Toronto. I wonder if she's still going to be able to work on Zool because I think Zool is at Research Casting International which is a little ways from British Columbia. Well, hopefully they can make it work. Yeah. Next, Denver Fowler and his team from Dickinson Dinosaur Museum in North Dakota have continued excavating these tyrannosaur sites that they found last year in the Judith River Formation in Montana. And so far they found more of a mummified arm of an unidentified hadrosaur. And they're working on getting out a tyrannosaur, which apparently will be the first tyrannosaur housed in North Dakota. Mm-hmm. But it's going to take them a while. they got to work on it again next season, 2019. It's kind of surprising. It's always weird when the place where the dinosaurs are found don't have that many dinosaurs. Like they all get shipped off to other countries. Well, technically, or states. it's found in Montana and it's going to be shipped to North Dakota. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I guess North Dakota might not have tyrannosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> in Australia, the Queensland Museum is 3D scanning its collection of fossils and they're going to share their research with Australian students and international scientists. It's part of this Project Digital Infrastructure Growth, also known as DIG, and it's thanks to a $7.6 million partnership with the museum and global resources company, BHP. Cool. It's a large project. That is. In Grand Prairie, Alberta, Canada, new dinosaur bones have been found in the Spring Creek bone bed near the Philip J. Curry Museum, and the bones are of juvenile hadrosaurs. It's not clear yet what kind of hadrosaur it is, but... The bones are going to be cleaned, studied, and then eventually put on display, although that may take a few years. Yeah. It's nice, though. They have that fossil preparation lab now just like a couple miles away, whereas before they would have had to go a few hundred miles. Yeah. Yeah, I think they were expecting it. That's partly why they chose that area. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Dinosaur Hill in Fruta, Colorado has some new signs that are meant to teach people about the historical importance of the area. So if you're hiking around there, now you can learn about the historic dinosaur quarry and research around the area. And I didn't know this. Dinosaur Hill got its name because Elmer Riggs discovered an apatosaurus skeleton there in 1901. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, I like that. Ohio State University's Orton Hall Museum is getting a Cryolophosaurus cast to be on display starting October 7th. Cryolophosaurus, it's a theropod. It's about half the size of T-Rex. And David Elliott, a geology professor at Ohio State who recently retired, found Cryolophosaurus in 1991. In Antarctica. Yes, in Antarctica. And the museum, they had a fundraising goal of $80,000 to get the dinosaur. And now Research Casting International will install the display. And it's going to be 22 feet long. And the cast will weigh 1,000 pounds. Oof. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's not too bad. Some of them get heavier. <laughs> yeah, well, if it's only half the size of a T-Rex. I suppose, yeah. In Texas, Brazos Valley Museum of Natural History has some new fossils, including a full-size cast of a Triceratops skull. And if you want to visit, the museum's open Monday through Saturday. 
From now until September 9th, you can see the Tyrannosaurus exhibit The Mystery of Evolution at the Okinawa Prefectural Museum and Art Museum in Naha, Japan. And you can see bones and skeleton casts and some feathered dinosaurs and, of course, a large T-Rex skeleton. (laughs) Makes sense, considering the name of the exhibit. Yeah. (laughs) The Bolton Museum in Bolton in the United Kingdom recently officially nicknamed their Tojangosaurus skeleton as Django. They held a contest to figure out the name. I guess they had over 400 entries. Seven people won, which I I don't know if they were a group that entered the name together or they all just submitted the name Django. <laughs> they got certificates and vouchers for the gift shop. And Django is going to be suspended from the ceiling and unveiled at the same time as the museum's new Egyptology gallery. So they're suspending a stegosaur from the ceiling. Yeah. That's an interesting move. Usually that's what they do with pterosaurs or underwater swimming things. Yep. Not large quadrupedal. Terrestrial, yeah. (laughs) But maybe they just had a good spot for it or something they were taking out that used to be suspended. And they're like, what are we going to put here? Oh, we got this cool stegosaur. Let's hang it from the ceiling. Everyone can easily see Django. From a view that you usually wouldn't see. Exactly. (laughs) Directly underneath. (laughs) (laughs) Get one last museum-related news. So Smithsonian Magazine wrote an elegy for Hatcher the Triceratops. What's an elegy? Basically, it's to lament Hatcher's death. Is it like a eulogy? Yeah, something like that. So... Hatcher, you might remember, is the Triceratops from the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. And we talked about this with Hatcher is moving to a new type of exhibit in the Hall of Fossils Deep Time exhibit that's opening next June. As they put it, or as we talked about, he's going through a narrative arc. Yeah, he's about to get eaten. So thus the elegy. Yes. So Hatcher was named after John Bell Hatcher, who collected the first Triceratops specimen back in 1888. And the elegy says, quote, Hatcher is survived by longtime frenemy Tyrannosaurus Rex, who can be seen eating Hatcher in the David H. Koch Hall of Fossils deep time. (laughs) Hatcher was the world's first Triceratops to be put on display back in 1905. No complete skeletons have been found then. So Hatcher is actually a composite of 10 individuals. (laughs) Which made him look a little odd for a long time. He had a skull that was too small for his body and different length front legs. Then in 1996, Hatcher started falling apart. Oh, no. His pelvis fell to the ground while there was a visitor looking on. (laughs) And it's because he had pyrite disease. It's when humidity causes deposits of pyrite in the fossil to grow and then basically broke up Hatcher's bones. Yeah. We talked about that, I think, in a fun fact once. Pyrite is the same as fool's gold. And it's a mineral that basically swells with water. So it's similar to cracks in a road where ice gets in or water gets in and then it freezes into ice and then it expands and makes the cracks bigger. And since fossils are already pretty brittle, if you have some of that pyrite in there and the humidity is too high, things start to go real bad. Then you lose a pelvis. Yeah. So in 1998, Hatcher was renovated and restored to a more scientifically accurate mount and also got a 3D scan of his skeleton. And then he came back to the public in 2001. And Matthew Carano, Smithsonian's curator of dinosaurs, said that he's already gotten emails from people who are upset about Hatcher's death in the new exhibit. But he says Hatcher's cause of death in the new exhibit is unknown. Maybe the T-Rex is just scavenging Hatcher or maybe the T-Rex killed Hatcher. I see. And the mystery around Hatcher's death is meant to make people think more like a paleontologist and look for clues. Hmm. It's kind of hard when they're just skeletons. It'd be a lot 
easier to look for clues if they were fully fleshed out animals because you're not going to be able to see like tooth marks or anything on it. Right. Or where the blood's coming out. Yeah. But they might have something. I suppose they could add something or they add some little scratches onto its ribs to make it, if you look really close, you could see like what kind of denticles scratched it. I'd be like, that looks like a tyrannosaur tooth that bit it on its side. Oh, that's really detailed. Yeah, you'd need a magnifying glass. <laughs> I don't know if they'll let you get that close. Probably not. Paleontologists can get really close. That's one of the advantages. <laughs> <laughs> Send him an email. <laughs> that's what he wants. <laughs> <laughs> Next, there's a good list of dinosaur games going around. It's the headline says it's for kids, but some of these we play as adults. <laughs> <laughs> so the list includes Magic School Bus, Dinosaurs, where huh. you join Ms. Frizzle to uncover dinosaur bones. So I guess that one's geared towards kids unless you feel nostalgic. I was going to say I want to get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's Dinosaur Island, which is a board game where you sequence dinosaur DNA and build your own amusement park. I think we've talked about that one before. There's Jurassic Park Danger, and we've definitely talked about this board game before. One person plays as the dinosaurs, and the rest are humans from the movie, and they have to escape the island. Oh, yeah, the one that's just like Jurassic Park 3. Yeah, we've played Jurassic Park 3, so I know we would play Jurassic Park Danger. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's Dino Frontier, a VR game where you're the mayor of an old west town, and there's dinosaurs. Oh, yeah, I think that one was on PlayStation, if I remember correctly. That sounds right. I don't think I've seen it on Oculus, because otherwise I would have played that. So another game for adults as well. And then they also mentioned Ark Survival Evolved, which we know many adults who play this. I don't know yeah. why they say it's just for kids. That one is very popular. <laughs> and yeah, not very good for kids because it's very, well, I don't know. Kids really like Minecraft. Mm -hmm. And Ark Survival Evolved is very much like Minecraft. It's like the same kind of, you use these really large pieces of building material to make your structures and all that kind of stuff. It's pretty fun, but also very time consuming. I think when I was playing it, I was playing it for, I don't know, 10 hours a day for about a week. Oof. And then I wasn't getting enough sleep and I, was, I just had to stop <laughs> <laughs> to protect myself from myself. Because you have to constantly go in to feed dinosaurs and stuff. And then there's ways to tweak the game so you don't have to. But all the official servers, mm -hmm. it's like very time intensive game. Gets addicting. And it's like, if you want to get a dinosaur, you have to knock it unconscious and then like they call it training it, but basically you're just feeding it and you have to literally sit there and feed it for hours, like in real human hours, <laughs> not video game hours. So, and the really good dinosaurs take almost a day. So you either have to not sleep or you get other people involved that help you feed it or something. It's problematic. Too intense. Yeah, it is too intense. But we did get a message from somebody saying, just play on your own private server and change all these settings so that you train it really quickly. <laughs> Which I might try at some point. But that sounds like a good list. Mm -hmm. I want to try that Magic School Bus one. <laughs> that was the first one on their list. <laughs> this is the main one we haven't played. There were a couple others that did seem more geared towards kids. Oh, okay. You left them off the list. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to emphasize adults can play too. <laughs> gotcha. There's another dinosaur VR game out that you can actually play in more than 100 Dave and Buster locations. Hmm. It's Jurassic World VR Expedition. It's an official Jurassic World game. You're on, in the game, you're on Isla Nublar the day after events in Jurassic World and I guess leading up to Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Hmm. And you have to scan and identify dinosaurs roaming the island. Oh, that's kind of fun. Yeah. 
So it was Dave and Buster's Universal and the virtual reality company, VRC, that teamed up to create the game. And it sounds somewhat similar to Jurassic World Revealed, which you can play on Amazon Alexa. We talked about that, except in that game, you're a podcaster on Isla Nublar. And mm. of course, this game, Jurassic World VR, is in VR, so a little bit different. Much more immersive than talking to a microphone speaker combo. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll have to see where our nearest Dave and Buster is. I guess so. <laughs> It'd be nice if it came out on something I could do at home, but it doesn't sound like it's going to if Dave and Buster's was involved in the creation. Probably not for a while. Next, thanks to Alpay who shared this one with us. There's some potential spoilers if you haven't seen Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom yet, although, come on. Shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> if that's the case. <laughs> Apparently, E.T. inspired the really sad Brachiosaurus death scene in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Really? Mm-hmm. Did E.T. It- e. die? I don't think no, dies. but it's this visual of E.T.'s chest cavity lighting up in the <laughs> oh, movie. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. There's actually one commentary on this on how that was a mean thing for J.A. Bayona to do because now he's like, because now he's associated this terrible death scene with E.T. But <laughs> I mean, it's more like similar in a, it's more similar in composition than anything like the colors and things kind of remind you of it. It's not like something is burning up and I don't know. I think he also tweeted other nods to E.T. in the movie. So the last shot of blue overlooking a suburb in the mountains is the same suburb where they shot E.T. Hmm. And there's an E.T. toy somewhere in Maisie's room in the mansion. I did not notice that. Nah. <laughs> but I did not like E.T. when it came out. So Why not? Too scary for me. Oh, because they were going after that friendly guy. With their walkie-talkies. The alien? Yeah. Yeah. In the new version, they use walkie-talkies instead of guns. Oh. Uh. <laughs> Doesn't really make any sense. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember why. Maybe I was too young. And last, thanks to Stuart, who shared this one with us. So, producer and Army veteran Gregory Wong brought together, quote, members of the military, firearms, and Jurassic community, end quote, to create an epic fan film for Jurassic Park, but told from a tactical military perspective. And this is according to We Are the Mighty. So, they flew people and equipment to Hawaii and filmed in just five days. Oh, wow. That's which, a thorough thing. Yeah. It was I thought impressive. This was like something that they did at like a VA or something. No, this isn't a genuine short film it's about 25 minutes long and really well done wow yeah they shot on three locations and active duty service members stationed on the island helped transport cast and crew and did some of the stunts and background work and the film portrays realistic military tactics and cast and crew were mostly veterans some of whom were really popular on social media but hadn't acted before hmm And they also had some professional actors. There's a lot of people and groups who came together to develop gear and equipment for the film and lend their expertise and donate prop firearms and uniforms. And they also worked with a prop builder and artists for the dinosaurs. They had Velociraptor and T-Rex. And it was really entertaining. The dinosaur shots were fleeting. There's not that many, but that's really understandable because they had a shoestring budget. The Velociraptor puppet, though, I really liked. It looks similar to the Jurassic Park Velociraptor. Makes sense. It interacts a bit with the actors, kind of sniffs one really <laughs> for a second. And then, of course, there's fight scenes with the T-Rex. And so far, as of this recording, there are over 148,000 views on YouTube. So pretty entertaining to watch. Again, 25 minutes, so not too long. I'm going to have to check it out. When did you watch this? How did I miss it? You were busy working on something else. Oh. <laughs> but I enjoyed it. Yeah, that is cool. Usually we just see... 
people on YouTube recreating a scene because they painted their car to look like the Jurassic Park car and then they drive behind a oh, guy. Oh, they did have the Jurassic Park cars. But they didn't have like a dude in an inflatable T-Rex costume or no, something. No, no, no. They had CGI <laughs> T-Rex. That's pretty good. Yeah. And they went to Hawaii. Yep. It's impressive. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Griffoceratops, which was a request from Philip via Patreon, so thanks. It was a leptoceratopsid ceratopsian, it's a mouthful, that <laughs> lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Alberta, Canada. Its name means griffin horned face. I was thinking that with griffo. Yeah. Only the holotype has been found. It consists of a partial right lower jaw, but it was found in the Milk River Formation in Dinosaur Provincial Park. It was named in... 2012 by Michael Ryan, David Evans, Philip Curry, Caleb Brown, and Don Brinkman. And the type species is Griffoceratops morrisoni. It was herbivorous. It's the oldest known leptoceratopsid, but also one of the most advanced. And leptoceratopsids are closely related to neoceratopsians, but they're more primitive and usually smaller. So in other words, it occurs early in the geological record. So it's older than the other ones. But it has some features that you'd expect to see in more derived ceratopsians. That's pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. We see that from time to time. Like one little offshoot just happens to evolve a bunch of new features, even though it's pretty early geologically speaking. Yeah. And then you get the headlines like this kind of dinosaur evolved, evolved this feature twice. Yeah, that's true. That would be a good headline. A little bit less sensational. Oh, I think <laughs> I've seen that headline. That's cool. 
Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to really base a new species on just part of a right lower jaw. That's not as diagnostic as you'd like it to be for a new species. No, I do like the name though. Yeah, it's a good one. Because there's not much known about it, it's not clear how big it was, but it might be the smallest known adult ceratopsian from North America. Assuming that the bone that we have is from an adult, or that we can project properly the entire body size of the animal from a jaw. Mm. It's a little tricky. Yeah. And our fun fact of the day is related to Don Henderson's new Spinosaurus article, and it's that until the 1950s to 70s, both sauropods and hadrosaurs were often considered aquatic or semi-aquatic, which I had realized about sauropods, but I don't think I had really known about with hadrosaurs before. Yeah, that's a good point. Although in the land before time, they are depicted as in the water chewing vegetation. Yeah, that's true. So in the original description, apparently, of hadrosaurs from 1858, because this is one of the first dinosaurs, Joseph Lady indicated that hadrosaurus had aquatic adaptations. And then Cope agreed with that sort of diagnosis 25 years later. As evidence, they point to webbed hands and deep tails for swimming. Reminds me of that ceratopsian we talked about a couple weeks ago, Mm -hmm. where people were saying, oh, it's got this deep tail. Maybe it used it for swimming. Mm -hmm. Probably not. Hadrosaurus certainly probably didn't. But Uh, webbed hands. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about their feet, they had those big sort of rounded toes and they, you know, they looked a little bit, I don't know, less terrestrial maybe than theropod feet. And they thought another advantage might be that these hadrosaurs could have run into the water to escape predators, although Mesozoic water isn't (laughs) the safest place to be either. But, you know, maybe if you're in a lake or something, you'd be safer. And that reminds me of water bucks, which are in Africa now. They run into water to escape predators, apparently. So it's not unheard of. Except there's usually predators in the water there, too. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. But unfortunately for Lady and Cope, about 100 years after that original description, we started finding more evidence that hadrosaurs and sauropods were, you know, terrestrial animals. But that does mean that for about the first 100 years we knew about hadrosaurs, we thought they were aquatic only, and really only for the last 50 have we considered them terrestrial, which seems crazy to me, having grown up on Jurassic Park as sort of my earliest and most outdated version of dinosaurs, (laughs) which shows all these animals as terrestrial. I mean, there's a little bit of sauropods in the water, but they're getting out of the water. It's not really you know, much water time. Mm -hmm. And the hadrosaurs are on land the whole time. So Jurassic Park, though, pretty current. They did a really good job. I know we say this all the time, but... It's true. Yeah, because in the 70s, there were still people saying that hadrosaurs belonged in the water. (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And check out our page at patreon.com slash I Know Dino for extra perks and whatnots. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.